This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. Not only does it fail to prepare us for these emotions, but it... And makes these feelings, for lack of better terms, unnormal, which can lead mm-hmm. to all sorts of mental health and relational challenges um, that come with it. Um, yeah. And then we kind of stuff, we stuff the negative feelings down and don't talk about it. I can't tell you how many people, when my husband and I are honest with them and say, oh yeah, we struggled in the early years of marriage and still have struggles sometimes today. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Amanda Held Opelt. She is a musician and songwriter, along with writing various outlets, including Christianity Today. Amanda has now authored two books, including A Hole in the World and Holy Unhappiness. Amanda, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. It's good to talk with you today. So uh, last couple of weeks, I've been listening to your uh, albums, and I had a hard time pinning down your genre because the collection is so diverse. How, how would you describe your music? 
That's a good question. I mean, I think most of my music really does feel like in many ways it's kind of rooted in that Appalachian folk heritage type of music, um, the storytelling that that comes from that genre of music and some just some of the the sound environment that comes from from this region that I've really pretty much always called home um greater Appalachia uh, but it, you know the last couple of projects I've tried to kind of maybe modernize the sound just a little bit and experiment with a little bit of that so a lot of my sound uh is owed to my brilliant producer Everett Harden who I've worked with on the last couple of projects and Sometimes I let his creative mind go a little bit crazy when he when he records and he has a big influence on on the sound. So I'd, I'd say it's for the most part rooted in Appalachian folk music. Yeah. So you've got this kind of musical aspect, you getting into your writing rhythm, which we'll get into the book here in a second. But like like embedded within all that is a humanitarian work. So tell us about mm -hmm. some of the work that you've done over the last you know decade plus. Yeah, but my first kind of um, way that I dabbled in humanitarian work is right after college, I went and served with some um, outreaches based in India, run by Indian people working uh, with uh, uh, people in leper colonies, uh, people uh, living in uh, homes for HIV widows and orphans, and just kind of, kind of being exposed to what it looks like for neighbor to serve a neighbor and helping support them through teaching English and doing some fundraising type of things. Came back home to the U.S. and did work in more um, urban environments in the United States, working with women who had been, uh, you know, dealing with the generational poverty and uh, underemployment and helping them, you know, gain job skills and GED training. But most of my career was spent in kind of a little bit more of a formal uh, international aid organization. I primarily did staff care, which means I always tell people I wasn't a proper aid worker. I was never the one, um, you know, saving babies or delivering the food. I was I was the one that uh, kind of helped um, work with lifelong aid workers uh, to help them build skills for resilience and uh, process some of their trauma, make sure they had access to clinical counseling and, and access to some of the uh, rest and relaxation benefits, all of those things. So building kind of a staff care capacity within the organization. But that meant that I got to travel around the world and go to some of these places where these aid workers were serving war zones, disaster zones, famine areas, and really see um, see things that I'd never been exposed to growing up. You know, I had a very privileged childhood growing up, a trauma-free childhood. We always, we were never wealthy, but we always had everything we need. We always had food and a roof over our heads. And to just see people that were struggling with even the basic, most basic of needs was, was really formative for just me as a person, for my writing, for my work. So uh, speaking of your writing, you have a new book, A Holy Unhappiness. This book invites readers to re-examine our understanding of a blessed life. You wrote, my unhappiness did not descend on me like a grand revelation. It's been more like a slow drip of disappointment. I've lived with it for almost as long as I can remember, but I wouldn't call it a clinical anxiety or depression. The feeling is something akin to restlessness and ever-present anti-climax. It feels like lack, almost as if I'm expecting something out of life that has not yet been delivered. Can you take us into your your personal journey that that stirred you to write this book? You know, I think I was just kind of um, 
I was processing the fact that even though I had kind of made all the right decisions in life and kind of followed this script that I was given, I think as Christians, a lot of times we're given this script that if you do these things, if you make good decisions, if you participate in ministry, if you're active in a church, if you, you know, have your daily quiet time, marry a godly spouse, all these things, you know, and kind of tick all these boxes, then you're going to experience emotional fulfillment. God might not make you healthy and wealthy, right? That's the, the traditional prosperity gospel, which is this idea that God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He doesn't want you to be sick. He doesn't want you to be poor. You know, I had always rejected that, but I had embraced what I kind of felt like it was this more subtle spinoff, something I like to call the emotional prosperity gospel. This idea that if you believe all the right things and do all the right things, God wants to make you happy. And I was just dealing with kind of this low grade sense of disappointment in my life, if that makes sense. Almost like, you know, I, I, I wasn't always happy in my job. Here I was working for a Christian ministry, doing good work, doing God's work, even you might say. I felt like I'd found my calling, something I was really passionate about. And still work was frustrating. Work was boring sometimes. It was hard. I was I was exhausted. I was jet lagged. And, and there were many days I didn't want to go into the office. Why was that? If I had kind of made this great decision decision and and was you know doing ministry doing God's work um motherhood marriage everything that I thought was supposed to be really good and personally fulfilling in life was on many days but there were other days when it was a struggle when it was hard and so I just kind of began exploring that and exploring some of the beliefs we have about what the blessed life might look like and how God meets us even in some of our more uncomfortable emotions like boredom, like restlessness, like burnout. Does God meet us in those places too? We can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. The roots of this book, as you were just alluding to, comes out of the American evangelical expectation of prosperity. You wrote, mm -hmm. in many ways, the ideology was caught, not taught, as they say. The set of propositions crept its way into the language of popular Christian books, music, sermon series, and wall decor. It permeated the evangelical churches I attended. Is it is it fair to say that white evangelicalism is just a spiritualized version for middle-class American dream? Gosh, it can be, Andy. I think that's a great observation. I mean, I, I think about the Beatles a lot, you know, the, the British band, the Beatles. <laughs> I promise I'm going somewhere with this. But, you know, I like how you had to explain them. who the Beatles were. <laughs> I just wanted to be sure in case there were any like Gen Zers who had never heard of the culture shaping uh, <laughs> art entity that is the Beatles. 
Yeah, and in your defense, not to distract from your answer, they did have to make a movie recently of like, what would a world be like if if we didn't have Beatles songs? Oh <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. <laughs> sorry, Definitely. go back. Sorry for no, the no. You're absolutely right. Okay, so I think about the Beatles a lot because a lot of me, a lot of times people ask the questions like, were they trend followers or did they create the trends? And I think we always have to do that with christianity which has been the dominant religion in america and the dominant cultural trends you know whether that's modernity or post-modernity or consumerism or capitalism which influences which and i think it's really in many ways i think a symbiotic relationship and so there are so many ways in which modern white american christianity has been infiltrated by the American dream narrative, by consumerism, by capitalism, by white supremacy, uh, by middle class values, by upper class values. And I, I think we just always have to be kind of examining that. And so, yeah, th this is why we got to go back, I think, every uh, as much as we can every day, even to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst. You know, blessed are the merciful, because Americans tend to um, elevate might over meekness, elevate prosperity over poverty, uh, elevate victory over, um, you know, over the waiting, over over losing. We don't like losing. We don't like waiting. We don't like, um, you know, anything that makes us feel weak or out of control, whereas Jesus says many times God is found in those places. And so, yeah, I think it's a great question. And I just, I don't know, sometimes I think we blame the church for that and I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to kind of we're fish swimming in water and we don't always know what the water is that we're swimming in. And we just have to kind of be be mindful of that as American Christians is how much of what we believe has been formed by our culture rather than scripture. It is hard to think of a world where people didn't know what the Beatles were. So let's just not. I'd rather not. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary world. So I was listening recently, a small side note, I was listening to an interview recently with Paul McCartney, and he was sharing that one of the things he loves about the remastering is that it is reintroducing the Beatles mm. to people who have never heard them before. And right. People have the same experience that everyone did way back when. But yeah. that's another that's another interview for us to talk about. So <laughs> I've been in the church since the womb. Um, I've been in vocational mm. ministry since I was 14. I've yeah. experienced a myriad of expressions of church serving in most of those expressions. Now I'm in the unique, you know, role of denominational work, visiting even more expressions of the church. And yeah. I still hear this theology in subtle ways, you know, the citing of James 117, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans mm -hmm. I have for you, declares Lord. What do you think is behind the desire to believe that this is how God, goodness and blessings work? Mm. I mean, who among us doesn't want control, doesn't want ease, ease of emotion, ease of life? Um, I think we want to believe that, you know, we like formulas that if you just kind of input this, then this is the output that you're going to get. So good choices will result in, in blessing, wise choices, spiritual activities will result in spiritual euphoria. And I just don't believe life works that way. I think life is, you know, much more precarious than we tend to believe. We we have a, a pretty, I would say as far as in the history of humanity is concerned, 
our modern existence here in white privileged America is pretty stable, you know, compared to that of our ancestors. We have more access to food and shelter and medical care and vaccines and all these things. But but life still throws us curveballs. Our our health and our well-being and and our relationships are still very much out of our control. And so I think so much of these these aphorisms that we incorporate into our worship, into our spiritual lives are really us grasping for control. And I think scripture's pretty clear that life in this broken world will never be in control. You know, the news that we're seeing on TV right now is a reminder of that. These places where there's warfare and trauma can feel really far away, but in many ways they are not. They you know, those types of things could happen anywhere. And so, yeah, I think some of it is just a, a yearning for control, a yearning for formula, a resistance to mystery, a resistance to the unknown that we just don't have much of a stomach for in modern day culture. You give this insight. Uh, American is particularly maintaining a special aversion to pain and suffering. We are incredibly proficient in avoiding hurt and putting on an optimistic face. If you are an American of European descent, it means that your ancestors initially came to these shores for the very purpose of escaping hardship. They were fleeing persecution, poverty, and oppression. The instance of a better tomorrow is written in our DNA. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an insight that I've read in a couple places, just noting that, again, if you are of European descent in America, it is probably because your ancestors um, were were fleeing some sort of hardship. This this is the American dream. This is kind of this this narrative of the boot pulling yourself up by your bootstraps of believing in a better uh, tomorrow and believing in brighter horizons. This even this idea of the American frontier. There's something there's something for me out there just over the horizon. I'm going to leave behind what's hard and move towards prosperity and and move towards um towards hope and something better. That's just kind of who we are, I think, as that that's kind of the American narrative that has shaped how we think about about our lives even today. Now that's that's different if I think if you're of um, African American descent, if you are a recent immigrant to this country, there's there's a different story, there's different narratives, there's a deeper understanding of 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 what it means to to suffer and and maybe even a, a, a tolerance for it that can be very insightful and even a, a gift of of wisdom and insight to the white American church. You know, in the book, you highlight some of the aspects of um, this emotional prosperity gospel that creates the expectations of pathways for our life. And one of those pathways is marriage. Um, so let's look at this from, from you know, one angle. You wrote, um, the thought that marriage could be a grievous transition was foreign to me. No one ever told me that I should lament the end of my singleness the gain of a husband was also the loss of many things I held dear, autonomy, independence, and total freedom of choice. Talk to us about how marriage is not a, a shortcut to the good life. Mm. Well, I'm happy to talk about this today because it happens to be my 14th wedding anniversary. <laughs> and I am I am grateful to say that I am happily married. And yet it's also true that I went into marriage with a lot of really unfair expectations. And, and there's a long list of reasons why we in modern American culture, particularly Christian 
modern American culture have elevated marriage to this almost sanctified status. It's this, you know, ever since the Protestant Reformation, which was a pushback against the supremacy of celibacy of the priesthood, it was this, you know, Martin Luther was trying to say, hey, there's holiness in every station, in married life and single life. What a, and, and that was good. That was a good pushback. But the pendulum is kind of swung to where we say, hey, listen, marriage is where God does his, his most incisive sanctifying work. Marriage is where women in particular, so I don't know if maybe you experience this as a man as much, but for women in particular, this is where you find out what it means to embrace biblical womanhood through, through motherhood, through marriage is where God really, really, you know, you find your calling as a woman, you find your reason for being as a woman. And so all of these expectations, okay, this is where I'm going to find my highest calling in marriage. This is where I'm going to be sanctified. This is where I'm going to, you know, kind of achieve this righteous status. Uh, that that was the expectation I came into marriage uh, with. And also, I think we we kind of expect our spouse in this culture to meet all of our emotional and practical needs. You know, in, in centuries past and generations past, there were these kind of wider networks of social support. You were kind of born and raised and lived and died in the village that, that you were born in. And so you kind of saw these relational connections of kinfolk and neighbors. These were all kind of essential to your well-being, whereas now we're much more mobile. Um, we, we kind of go and live wherever we want to live. And so that one married partner is kind of seen as our one anchoring relationship in life. It is kind of the cornerstone relationship in all of life. And that's a lot for one person to carry. It's a lot for one person to be your financial partner, your co-laborer, your best friend, your soulmate, your lover, your co-parent. It's a lot for one person to kind of hold. And yet we've put all that emphasis on that one relationship. You know, culture does this through through music, through art, through song. I mean, how, how many rom-com films have been made just kind of elevating this one relationship, telling us this, this is the one relationship in life you must have in order to be happy. Um, and so that to me sets any marriage, it, well, it sets married people up for failure. And it certainly sets single people up for failure to believe that, hey, if, I, if, I, if I'm not married, there's no way I'm ever going to be relationally satisfied or have any kind of uh, relational meaning in my life. And so I think it's just, we, we failed, we failed everybody uh, with these super high expectations we have of marriage. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, 
free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Yeah, I love the way you put it when you wrote, um, but the promise itself is a beautiful safeguard. Ensures I stay true to what I know is right and good in the long run. Is a type of insurance against my own tendency to fight or flee whenever things get tough. In a world where vows seem like they were made to be broken, there's something subversive about giving more power to your promise than to your preference and about giving more credence to your commitment than impulse. I wonder if there's anything you want to add to that. Well, I just, I think we don't like to speak in the language of obligations in this culture. Uh, an obligation doesn't sound very romantic or sexy, right, <laughs> when it comes to marriage. But I think obligations, vows, promises, whether they're made in marriage or they're made in church communities, uh, to family members, to friends, I think those types of promises and those types of obligations can be really, really beautiful. Because we have this impulse, just like we were talking about earlier, that the moment something becomes uncomfortable, we have this impulse to flee. We have this impulse to move on to something better. And no marriage will survive that. I don't think any friendship will survive that because real deep, intimate relationships, marriages, friendships we're, are going to get hard. They're going to get uncomfortable sometimes. And so I think, it, yeah, I just think there's something really, really beautiful about saying, hey, I'm I'm in this. I'm committed to it through the up and down, through the thick and thin. Uh, but but that really very much goes against our cultural inclination right now. We're not going to work through, you know, kind of all of these shortcuts that you talk about in the book, but one other one I thought was fascinating was, um, you know, around um, parenthood, you know, mm -hmm. one step beyond this notion of marriage as being a shortcut to the good life is built on the assumption that children will come with the combo meal, if you will. Yeah. Um, you urge, uh, it is incorrect to say that parenthood is the right for everyone that to be um, that to be a mother is God's highest calling, but I'm not sure you can rank callings on a scale, determine which adds more value to the kingdom of God. I was not meant to be a mother any more than I was meant to be a missionary, an aid worker, or a writer. It's simply a responsibility that I stepped into as a labor I said yes to, that God said yes to. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Again, you know, these prescriptive pathways that we're told will lead to happiness and how that connects to the potential of children and parenthood. Yeah. It's a big one for women in particular that we're kind of told that motherhood is your highest calling. This was, this is a big talking point, I think in the nineties and early two thousands, probably as a pushback to the feminist movement who many people in Christianity feel like the feminist movement kind of, um, devalued the role of the housewife and the, and the mother and said, you need to shake off the shackles of raising children and go find your meaning and your purpose in the workplace and live up to your full potential. And so to maybe push back against that and say, actually, there's, there's a lot of beauty in the responsibility of mothering and keeping a home. And, and I'm all for that, but I don't like this idea that we've, we've been told it's the highest calling that it is. It is the, the highest form of biblical womanhood is to be a mother and to raise children. It's just one very beautiful option. It is one very beautiful role that a mother or a father can step into to serve the Lord and to serve the world. 
And so I, I hate this idea of ranking callings, whether that's, uh, you know, being a minister is more important than being a lay person or being a mother is more important than being single or being married is more important than being. I just I hate how we do that. We all have different stations and different commitments in life that that are there because of the choices we've made and because of what God has given us. And I just think that we all have to see them as having equal value or else we will once again be set up for disappointment because on motherhood's hard. <laughs> I think we think that if we've, if we've reached our full, you know, our highest calling, then it's going to be easy. And let me tell you, it's not. Motherhood can be really, really challenging. Parenthood is really, really challenging. That's not because you've done something wrong or you've missed your calling or you've made a mistake. It's just because life, is challenging. Love is challenging. Loving other human beings is hard work and that's okay. Yeah. So in the midst of one discovering the pursuit of happiness is not what one expected it to be. There are all kinds of uncomfortable emotions such as disappointment and sadness, grief and anger. How does the emotional prosperity gospel fail to prepare us for these emotions? Well, I think there's a little bit, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but I, I seem to kind of get this message that like negative emotions were the result of a poorly formed theology. That if you were, if you were, you know, being sanctified by Christ and, and, and really pursuing the Lord, that you would experience emotions like contentment, joy, peace, a peace that passes understanding. And, and so then when I was feeling grief or anger or restlessness or frustration or anxiety, I felt a lot of shame as a result of those emotions because I thought there's no space for that in the holy life. There's no space for those emotion in the life with God. Um, but then as I began to study scripture, particularly as a griever after losing my sister and I studied scripture through the eyes, through the lens of grieving, I saw that actually God is a very emotive God. God has a wide range of emotions. He is a jealous God. He's an angry God. He's a joyful God. He's a celebratory God. He's a, a grief-stricken God. And so I think that Jesus, who came, remember, as a man of sorrows, and God shows us that it is possible to have these difficult emotions and still um, be living a faithful life. I think that that these hard emotions are part of a of, of a faithful life. Gosh, sometimes they're they're even holy emotions because there is such a thing as righteous indignation. If we feel sick to our stomachs because of what we're seeing on the news right now, that's a holy feeling. That's a holy disgust. If we're angry, if we're confused, that's a holy feeling. If we feel concern for our children's future, it's because we love them deeply and that's a holy feeling. And so just learning to maybe see some of these emotions, not as a sign of unholiness, but rather as a sign of just being human in a fallen world. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Um, not only does it fail to prepare us for these emotions, but it... And 
makes these feelings for lack of better terms, unnormal, which can lead mm -hmm. to all sorts of mental health and relational challenges um, that come with it. Um, yeah. And then we kind of stuff, we stuff the negative feelings down and don't talk about it. I can't tell you how many people, when my husband and I are honest with them and say, oh yeah, we struggled in the early years of marriage and still have struggles sometimes today. The relief that washes over people because they feel like they can't be honest about it because yeah. they, they think that, that, that will be a sign that they're, they're broken or they're bad people or their marriage isn't somehow godly. And it's like, no, no, let's talk about how hard it is. Because if we, if we, if we stuff it down and cover it up with, you know, kind of um, saccharine sentiments, you know, holy um, kind of platitudes, then, then we're all going to be just silently suffering, which as you're, you're right, can lead to a slew of, of mental and uh, mental health and emotional struggles. Yeah. My interpretation of the ultimate question you're asking readers to consider is what we do with um, the pathways we are told will lead to happiness, work, mm -hmm. marriage, you know, children, among many others, fail to work, you know, so what do we do when these fail to work and fail to deliver on their promises? So how did, how did you come to this question? Um, how did you find the answers? I don't know that I found the answers, honestly, Andy. There's a part of me that I mean, I rewrote the afterwards like a million times uh, because I, I I feel like I'm still kind of figuring out where I land. I mean, a question as complex as what is the good life and you know emotions as as deep and uh, you know varied as sadness and happiness. So there's no, I think, clear conclusion and certainly no formula. I think. If, if anything, I just wanted the book to be a, a realistic take on the faithful life, uh, you know, to, to kind of just say, be, be careful about books or spiritual formulas that promise you emotional, consistent emotional happiness or emotional fulfillment. I'm just not sure that's possible this side of heaven, this side of the kingdom. And, and, and if you experience hardship, whether that's challenges, difficult experiences, difficult emotions, devastating emotions, mental health struggles. If you experience those things, it's not that you're a failure. It doesn't mean you've made a bad choice. It doesn't mean you need to quit your job necessarily or quit your relationship. And, and it doesn't even mean that God is far from you. It doesn't mean that you've failed spiritually. I think it just sometimes means that you're human. Pay attention to those difficult feelings and it may be a clue into something that needs tending in your life or something that needs to be addressed um but but it doesn't mean you're a failure it doesn't mean god is not present it doesn't mean god has failed you i think that's the takeaway i, I want people to walk away with yeah i love how you put it in the book my hope is that i'm slowly learning to trade my expectations of the good life for a deeper form of goodness blessings that are simpler but sturdier more durable in, in many ways stepping out of this emotional prosperity gospel is cutting a, a new pathway that's strange mm -hmm. and unfamiliar so how do we do that especially when it seems so counterintuitive from everything that we've been taught mm -hmm. 
Well, I think it's really helpful to just think about the things that we associate with the word blessing. And a good way to start this exercise is just to look up the hashtag blessed on Instagram and see what people post. Is it a new house? Is it a vacation? Is it a beach body selfie? Like, what is it that you think is a blessing? And, and I think it's okay to be thankful for the good things that we have in our life, to be thankful for the food that we eat, thankful for a, a safe home, thankful for a vacation with your family. But I want to be careful about labeling things that I associate with middle or upper class prosperity as blessings. I want to look at the things Jesus seems to highlight as blessings. Um, it, a hunger and thirst for God, that's a, a blessing. The fellowship of the saints, that's a, that's a blessing. Um, walking with the Lord, that is a blessing. Promises, keeping promises, staying faithful, lifelong relationships, these are blessings. The beauty of the earth, this is a blessing. And, and one thing that Shannon Martin, the author, said to me recently that I really appreciated was, um, that, that, that blessings, she thinks the truest blessings are blessings that are accessible to everyone. So not the mansion, um, not the expensive vacation to the high-end resort. These are things that aren't available to everyone. And Jesus even says, might prevent you from kingdom because it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Think about the things that are available to everyone. She loves to direct people to the beauty of the sky because it's this canvas of beauty that is above everyone, that belongs to everyone. Um, I think of character qualities a lot as a blessing now. An ethic. I mean, if anything, the journey of writing this book it made me kind of double down on the ethic of Jesus, that like there is something really beautiful about a life that is formed around the ethic of Jesus. It is a blessing to serve. It is a blessing to sometimes lay down your own desires and consider the desires of others. It's, it, it's, a, it's a blessing to keep your promises. It's a blessing to tell the truth and to not tell lies. When when you do these things, it may not create a life of abundance or even a life free of emotional pain, but I do believe it creates an environment that is conducive to flourishing, both for you and your neighbor. And so that's why I kind of throughout the book highlight these new understandings of, of what it means to be blessed. Our guest is Amanda Hell Opelt. The book is Holy Unhappiness. You can stay connected with her by visiting amandahillopelt.com. Man, it's been a joy conversing with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that real joy isn't a thing that is to be chased, but something you get when you're chasing the right thing. Thanks, Andy. It's great talking to you today. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.